1 Samuel 28. I have joked all around the office this week that when I think about the medium at Endor, what comes to mind is a Star Wars Christmas special on Disney+. Plus. But I assure you that's not what it is. Um, it is in the Bible. I can, I'll never forget, uh, when I was younger, I don't uh, remember exactly when, but finding out that this chapter and this story was a part of God's Word and in here, I remember thinking, who slipped this in? Like, what do you do with this? This is, by the way, the beauty of expository preaching, is that when we seek to go line by line, verse by verse, through God's Word and just allow God's Word to speak, we are not given the opportunity to just drive around potholes, are we? Um, And certainly through the years, if you've been here long enough, we've been through some potholes together, right? Where we come to places in God's Word and you just kind of scratch your head. What in the world do we do with this? But it's God's word and we believe it and we believe it's good for us. And so we will walk through first Samuel 28 this morning and not skip to another chapter. All right. So we're going to work through that together. Um, if you have come this morning hoping that perhaps we would answer all the questions that we have about first Samuel 28 and speaking to the dead, I am sorry to deflate your expectations Um, We are not going to do that this morning, nor is the bulk of our time going to be spent even talking about that issue. Um, As I have been walking through this chapter this week, it's just become very evident to me that that the focus and our focus needs to be on the precious gift of God's word and not trying to seek answers to all the questions that we have and really can't really answer at the end of the day. So that is the theme this morning. That is our title. That's our message. The precious gift that God's word is to us. Okay, let's be reminded for just a few moments this morning of how God's God's word is good for us. We can say many things. We can make many statements about God's word. We could read all kinds of scripture in talking about God's word's goodness to us or the goodness to us that is God's word. But I want to say two things this morning just in terms of reminder for us. Number one, God's word is reality revealing to us. We can say it like this. God's word is truth revealing to us. God's word contains the truth. It is God's word to us. It is God's revelation to us. I'm reminded of Psalm 119, 105. Many of us memorized that verse long before we can remember that we memorized that verse. So say it with me if it comes to your mind. Your word is a lamp unto my feet and a light to my path. That's exactly what God's word is. It illuminates the truth for us. The Bible tells us that in sin, we have been cut off from God. One theologian speaks of sin as casting an eclipse over the reality of God. It doesn't mean that God has gone anywhere. It doesn't mean that God is not there. It just means that we, in the darkness of our sin and our darkened hearts and our blind state spiritually, we can't see him. We can't know his purposes. And so isn't it good that we have a gracious God who, instead of just leaving us in the darkness of our sin, he saw fit to pierce our darkness with the light of his truth. He has given us his word. And so we must affirm and we must embrace and believe that God's word is truth revealing. Secondly, God's word is life giving. Do you believe that? God's word is life Giving. We sang about this. I'd even forgotten, JT, that this was in that song. But this very 
episode where the disciples are walking with Jesus and Jesus has just fed the multitudes with a very little bit of food and he's accumulated this crowd that's following him. And at this point, we're thinking, okay, Jesus, seal the deal. You got this group, man. You got this big following. Instead, what does Jesus do? He turns around and says something just really difficult. And what happens to the crowds? They leave. We can't handle this, this hard truth. Who, who, can, who can even understand what he's talking about, eating his flesh and drinking his blood? We can't have any. And so Jesus turns around and all the followers are gone except for his disciples. And he looks at the disciples and says, will you not leave too? And do you remember what the response was from Peter? Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. For the disciples, they were struggling to make sense of these things too. The things that Jesus kept saying and doing. We see that all through the Gospels. They're all struggling to make sense of this. But they do not leave him because they know that his word is life. So God's word is truth revealing. And it is life giving. The last time I think that. I was able to stand here and lead us in a time in God's word. I made mention of an important distinction that I think is is only growing in importance for us in our culture today and especially in our church culture. And that is the distinct the distinction between believing in God and believing God. You remember that? I think that this scripture calls this to mind again this morning. Do we believe in God and is belief in God sufficient or are we called by God to believe him? And it is God's word uh, as the place that that makes that distinction, that, that shows us the difference. You see, we believe God by resting our assurance on the goodness and trustworthiness of all that he has revealed to us in his word. It's popular to believe in God still where we live. Being less and less popular, but it's still okay. It's still popular, still in vogue to believe in God, not so much to believe him. But that is what we are called to, brothers and sisters, to believe him, not just stop short at believing in him. And in this chapter today, we see this key verse, verse number six. Look down at it with me. And it says there that when Saul inquired of the Lord... The Lord did not answer him. Do you feel the weight of that? That's the weight of this message this morning. That is the weight of this passage. That is the weight at this point in the story that we are intended to feel. That Saul inquires of the Lord, but the Lord does not answer him either by dreams or by Urim or by prophets. This morning, I hope that we will see and affirm together the precious gift that God's word is to us, but from a negative, tragic example of Saul. We're going to see what it looks like as we trace these final days of Saul, as he continues to spiral into the darkness. He has rejected God's word, and now we see that he is a man cut off from God, from his presence and from his word. And we are going to see together the tragedy of being cut off from God's word. And in that negative example, I hope that we can see, maybe in a fresh way for us, the precious gift that God's word is to us. One commentator says this, the most hopeless misery in all of life 
is to be abandoned by God. And that's what we see in Saul's life this morning. So let's pray together and then we'll begin to walk through this passage and see how God's word is such a precious gift for us. So, God, I pray that that would be where our gaze is this morning, Father. Lord, there's a lot in this chapter that might distract us, that might cause us to get caught up in other pursuits and seeking other answers. And, Lord, it's, it's fine it's, it's to, to seek those answers, to, to dig deep even, to uh, understand the things that are here. But, God, I pray that this morning our focus uh, would be where it needs to be, I believe, and that is on your word. Lord, help us to be a people who are thankful for the gift of your word and help us to see just how precious that gift is. Oh, God, I pray that we would not be a people uh, because of the abundance of your word around us that we come to neglect your word or that it becomes normal to us or just secondary. Oh, Father, I pray that you would help us to see just how precious this gift is. Lord, help us to uh, just be overwhelmed by your mercy and your grace that you've given us through your word. God, I pray that our supreme desire would be to know you and that we would come to see this morning that we can't have that without your word. God, help us not to buy any deception that would lead us to believe otherwise. That we can know you without abiding in your word. So God, help us to see just this precious gift that you have given us, Father. And Lord, I pray that we would believe your word take you at your word, that we would be indeed creatures of your word. So God, help us this morning as we walk through this passage together. We're thankful for your spirit that helps us to do that. And Lord, I pray that you would lead us to respond in a way that would honor you this morning. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. So last week, Gerald read the first couple of verses there that seemed to go with the end of 27 and with 29. It says there, in those days, the Philistines gathered their forces for war to fight against Israel. And Achish said to David, understand that you and your men are to go out with me in the army. David said to Achish, very well, you shall know what your servant can do. And Achish said to David, very well, I will make you my bodyguard for life. And then we come to verse 3. Now Samuel had died. Anybody else like, what happened? Right. Chapter 27 sets up this 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 whole storyline. Right. What's David going to do? Is he going to remain loyal to this Philistine king? Is he a Philistine leader? Is he going to remain loyal to them? Is he going to actually embrace this role as being his bodyguard? What's he going to do? Right. And then all of a sudden and now Samuel had died. You know, I'm reminded of sometimes when you're watching a a series, especially on these new streaming services, and uh, you get to the end of one episode, and it's a cliffhanger, right? You're just like, I need to watch one more, okay? I need need to turn the page. I need to know what's going to happen next. And then you, you, you start up the next episode, and instead of it going, continuing into the story to let you know what happened, all of a sudden there's a flashback from like season two. And you're like, why is this here? Like, why is that information being brought back? And then you watch the episode and you understand that all these things that happened long ago are uh, I'm being reminded of so that I can understand what's going to take place now before it gets back to the storyline that left me on the cliffhanger. That's kind of what 1 Samuel 28 is. We're going to be left hanging on the cliff for a chapter. And all of a sudden, all this old information is being brought back before us that's going to become important to see what's happening now in a different character's life, the character of Saul. And we're told three things here. Look at verses 3 through 5. Now Samuel had died, and all Israel had mourned for him and buried him in Ramah, his own city. And Saul had put the mediums and the necromancers out of the land. 
The Philistines assembled and came and encamped at Shunem. And Saul gathered all Israel, and they encamped at Gilboa. When Saul saw the army of the Philistines, he was afraid, and his heart trembled greatly. We're told three things here that are going to be important for where the story goes in this chapter. The first thing is that Samuel had died. Now, we already heard that a few chapters ago. We know that Samuel has died, but I think it's restated here because of the importance of it, especially spiritually. Saul had consulted Samuel. Samuel was his conduit, so to speak, to God. And I think it's interesting here, the timing of it all, that Samuel dies right after Saul is rejected. And so Saul, when he wants guidance here, he doesn't have Samuel to go to. So we're reminded of that, that Samuel has died. Number two, we are told that Saul had the mediums and the necromancers out of the land. He had put them out of the land. This goes back to uh, just doing what God's word had commanded in Deuteronomy 18, 9 through 14. And I want you to listen how God's word speaks of um, mediums and necromancers out uh, in, in that passage. Verse 9 in Deuteronomy 18, it says, When you come into the land that the Lord your God is giving you, you shall not learn to follow the abominable practices of those nations. That's the first thing that God's word says. You're going to come into this new land and you are not to adopt the practices of those who are living there. They are abominable practices. You are set apart as God's people. And he goes on to explain. There shall not be found among you anyone who burns his son or his daughter as an offering. Anyone who practices divination or tells fortunes or interprets omens or a sorcerer, or a charmer, or a medium, or a necromancer, or one who inquires of the dead. For whoever does these things is a what? An abomination to the Lord. And because of these abominations, the Lord your God is driving them out before you. You shall be blameless before the Lord your God. For these nations, which you are about to dispossess, listen to fortune tellers and to diviners. But as for you, the Lord your God has not allowed you to do this. And what is key in this? What sets them apart? Why are the people looking to uh, diviners and necromancers and mediums for information? They have nowhere else to turn. They want to know what the future holds, right? So that's where they are looking. They're conjuring up uh, literally ways to figure out what to do. They're looking for information. They're looking for guidance. And this is who they turn to. What is to set the people of God apart is that you have no need for that. I have called you as my people. You have my word. You have my presence. And you will depend on me. And I will be faithful to reveal to you the way that you should go. That there is a dependency here that's, that, that, uh, sorry, a dependency here that's expected of God's people. That they will be dependent on him to lead them, to reveal to them all that they need to know, to trust him, to rest in his sovereignty. This is supposed to set you apart. So God's word speaks of it as abominations. And at least at some point in the past, Saul has been obedient to drive those people out. He's driven out the mediums and the necromancers. That's going to be important for this chapter. And then finally, number three, the Philistine army was closing in. And indeed, we see that they're not only closing in, they have outflanked Saul and his army and they have surrounded them. And there's no way out of this. There's going to be a fight. And so what does it say in verse five is Saul's response to this? When Saul saw what? The army of the Philistines. When Saul saw the army of the Philistines, this is his response. He was afraid and his heart 
trembled greatly. A couple of things I want us to see about God's word this morning as we listen to this tragic tale of Saul. First, in your notes there, you can follow along. God's word unveils for us the reality of all things. God's word unveils for us the reality of all things. God's word reveals to us the reality of who God is. The more that we abide in God's word, the more that we grow in knowing who he is. God's word tells us that he is the creator. He is the sustainer. He is sovereign. He is all-knowing. He is all-powerful. He is the Lord of hosts. He is our refuge and strength. And even though Saul did not have the written word as we have it here, he still had the word of God that pointed to everything that God had done. It revealed to him God's faithfulness and his power and all of these truths about who he is. That God is the one who delivered his people from the Egyptians. God is the one who sustained them through the wilderness. God is the one who has brought desolation to even the most imposing enemies as his people have trusted him to do what he has proclaimed that he would do. But what is the problem? When we get outside of God's word, when we drift from God's word, we forget, don't we? We forget who God is. And so Saul's plight here in 1 Samuel 28 is really just the end of him drifting from knowledge of who God is. He is coming to a time where he is failing to remember who God is. You see, the point of God's word is not just to teach us about God. It's to help us to know God. As we abide in his word, we come to know who he is. And Saul was failing to take God at his word and he was forgetting who God was. God's word reveals the reality of who we are, that we are broken and we are needy and we are insufficient to look to ourselves for guidance, that we are a bad authority because we will always lead ourselves in the wrong way. Our hearts are not to be trusted. We need to abide in God's word so that we know that about ourselves and so that we know that in light of who God really is. Third, it opens to us the reality of our circumstances, the reality of the things that we face, those things that we can only see with our physical eyes. And I said this a few weeks back, that the truth about the Philistines is this. They never truly posed a threat to God. Amen? The Philistines never posed a threat to God. The Philistines never posed a threat to God's purposes and plans. And so as the Israelites were called to trust in the Lord and to fix their focus on who he is and on his faithfulness, they didn't have to worry about any enemy because God is greater than they are. And the victory was always theirs in him. But what happens with Saul when he begins to take his eyes off of God? He begins to look at the size of the enemy. He forgets that the Philistines are no real threat. Here's the truth that I want us to see this morning is that our knowledge is tied to our communion. Our knowledge is tied to our communion. Saul was failing to commune with God and he had for a long time. And so he lacked the knowledge that only God's word could give about the reality of the situation. The truth is God is good. The truth is we can trust him. The truth is God is already victorious. But Saul was forgetting because he was failing to commune. You see, the problem was Saul's heart was gripped only by what his physical eyes could see. His assessment of the situation, brothers and sisters, was not based in reality. It was only based on what his physical eyes could see. 
And so we see this, this sad summation of Saul and his response. When Saul saw the army of the Philistines, he was afraid and his heart trembled greatly. As I read that this week over and over, I thought it should read that Saul feared the Lord above all else and he trembled before him. That is how God's king should be leading his people. And instead, Saul had forgotten the Lord, forsaken his word, and now he is afraid because of the size of the army, and his heart trembled greatly. Second, we see that God's word invites us to rest in the sovereign care of our God. God's word invites us to rest in the sovereign care of our God. Read verses 7 through 14 with me. Then Saul said to his servants, seek out for me a woman who is a medium that I may go to her and inquire of her. And his servant said to him, behold, there is a medium at Endor. So Saul disguised himself and put on other garments and went and he, he and two men with him. And they came to the woman by night and he said, divine for me a spirit and bring up for me whomever I shall name to you. The woman said to him, surely, you know, that Saul or what Saul has done how he has cut off the mediums and the necromancers from the land. Why then are you laying a trap for my life to bring about my death? But Saul swore to her by the Lord, as the Lord lives, no punishment shall come upon you for this thing. Then the woman said, whom shall I bring up for you? He said, bring up Samuel for me. When the woman saw Samuel, she cried out with a loud voice. And the woman said to Saul, why have you deceived me? You are Saul. The king said to her, do not be afraid. What do you see? And the woman said to Saul, I see a God coming up out of the earth. He said to her, what is his appearance? And she said, an old man is coming up and he is wrapped in a robe. And Saul knew that it was Samuel. And he bowed with his face to the ground and paid homage. Here's a question that I would like for us to consider as we consider the second point. The question is this. When it comes to my life, when it comes to your life, when it comes to my life and the course of my life, is God's word sufficient for me? Let me put it this way. Is God's word vital to me? Lean into this. I think this is a question that we need to deal with, brothers and sisters, that needs to confront us this morning, that needs to confront our hearts, not only this morning, but always. Is God's word vital to me? Is it necessary to me? Do I see it as something that I need or is God's word helpful to me? Is God's word useful to me? Which one of those looks like true belief? That God's word is helpful, can be helpful, it's there if I need it. That it's useful to me when I'm in a situation that I need uh, something outside of myself to try to figure out. Or is God's word necessary for me? Is it vital to me? Is it vital to me in understanding the course of my life? Is it vital to me? Some people will say when they read this account, they'll say, look at verse 6. Doesn't Saul inquire of the Lord? Isn't that faith? Isn't Saul exercising faith there? That's the first thing that he does, by the way. Did you notice that in the text? He goes and he inquires of the Lord. So why then did God not respond to him? Well, look back at verse 6. Let's hear it. And when Saul inquired of the Lord, the Lord did not answer him, either by dreams or by Urim or by prophets. 
So he has looked for the Lord to speak to him in dreams. He's looked for him to speak to him through the high priest, through this process that they go through uh, called Urim, whereby they would bring God's word to the king or even by the prophets. Nobody is, is, is sharing with me what God's word is. I'm inquiring of God's word, maybe even over time, and God is not responding to me. Here's the truth. I think sometimes we get faith backwards. And I think this is especially true in our culture today. And I hear this so often emphasized in the music that we listen to and in popular preaching and in the things that we hear in our culture that are Christian is that so often our faith is focused on if God will reveal it to me, then I will do it. And we're always looking forward. God, if you'll just show me what you want me to do, I will do it. That's often how we think about God's will, isn't it? That if I'm thinking about God's will, it's something in the future that God has yet to reveal to me. God, if you would just reveal your will to me, then I will do it. For Saul, he's not acting upon what God has said. He is now looking for guidance after already rejecting what God has said. And this is where we get faith backwards. What does faith look like? It's not just making a proclamation that, God, if you tell me, I will do it. No, God has spoken. To believe the Lord is to take him at his word. To walk in what he has already revealed. Do you want to know the will of God, brothers and sisters? Read the Bible. God's word reveals to us his will. And as we walk in accordance with God's will, here's the beautiful truth. God will then lead you to understand your part in his will. You see, if we turn from God's word, we fall into pragmatism very quickly. We just look for what works. That's what pragmatism is. We're looking for what will work. And even if it looks like faith and a declaration that I will do what God tells me to do, in reality, we're just living out of pragmatism, and then we get to something that stumps us, then we call for God to help us. And that's what we see in the life of Saul. Look at this account in First Chronicles when it is told to us. First Chronicles 10, verses 13 through 14, to the one who would say, but Saul inquires of the Lord, isn't this an exercise of faith? Look at how First Chronicles reveals this story to us. It says, so Saul died for his breach of faith, his breach of faith. He broke faith with the Lord in that, listen, he did not keep the commandment of the Lord and also consulted a medium seeking guidance. He did not seek guidance from the Lord. It says, therefore, the Lord put him to death and turned the kingdom over to David, the son of Jesse. So it may seem like in verse 6 in 1 Samuel 28 that, yes, Saul is exercising faith. He's going to the Lord. He's seeking guidance from the Lord. But, brothers and sisters, that's where it stops. He wants the guidance that the Lord will give to him. He does not want the Lord. He's not interested in communion. He's not interested in walking in accordance with God's word. He just views God's word as helpful when he needs assistance. So the question that should confront us in is, are we seeking guidance from the Lord or are we seeking the Lord? Saul's heart is not for God and his word. Saul's heart is for self-preservation. And God is useful to him. God's word is useful to him to that end. He just wants self-preservation. His focus is on his self, not on God. And so when we fail to press into God's word, we turn very quickly to pragmatism. 
We just look for what works. Let me ask you this question. If it works, does that mean that it's good? I'll ask again. If it works, does that mean it is good? But how often do we live as if that's the case? When we feel squeezed by life, when we feel squeezed by our circumstances, we may even call out to God. But if we've been living in a pattern of pragmatism and now we try to throw God into a situation, that's not faith. That's not faith. And the truth is, we're not even going to rightly understand our circumstances if that is how we are living. Through his word, God calls us into the light to live in accordance with what he has revealed. When we reject his word, we drift further into the darkness. And look, follow this along with Saul here. Look at verse 8. So Saul disguised himself. Stop there for just a second. It's as if Saul steps out of his God-given identity, his God-given authority in order to do something that he has set his heart on. Here's one of the greatest tragedies of this chapter is that when the Lord does not speak back to Saul, Saul doesn't press more deeply into God. That's his greatest need. That is the greatest danger. That is the greatest danger that he faced is that God was not responding to him. But instead of instead of pressing more deeply into him. He decides to take matters into his own hands. He wants to find something that's going to work in order to get the answers that he needs. And in order to do that, he has to disguise himself. He steps out of his identity, out of his God-given role, and put on other garments and went, he and two men with him, and they came to the woman by what? Night. There continues to be this illustration, running illustration between light and dark. So Saul, in order to pursue the knowledge that he desires, he steps out into the darkness, into the night. And he said, divine for me by a spirit and bring up for me whomever I shall name to you. So right there, divine for me by a spirit, right? The very thing that God has called an abomination, that's where Saul turns. That's where he turns to find the answers because he believes that answers can be found there. By the way, look back up at verse 7. Then Saul said to his servant, Seek out for me a woman who is a medium, that I may go to her and inquire of her. And his servant said to him, Behold, there is a medium in indoor. Immediately his advisors knew where there was one and sent him to, to, to find her. Listen, Achish had better advisors than Saul does. Gerald mentioned this last week. Achish had better advisors than Saul does. In his pragmatism, Saul had surrounded himself with a bunch of yes men to enable his life the way that he wanted it. You see, Saul wasn't, wasn't interested in submitting to God's will. He was interested in controlling his own life and calling God down to bless that, to help him when he needed it. And even here, with his advisors, he doesn't have one advisor that looks at Saul and says, You know what? That's not a good idea, Saul. Mm, don't know if that's a good idea. Not only do they affirm it, they know immediately where one is. Wow. The advisors and influencers in our lives, brothers and sisters, matter. Matters. Are we walking with brothers and sisters who point us to the truth of God's word? When we begin to drift and we choose pragmatism, do we have people in our life that help us to see the danger in that and to point us back to God's word? When I go to the people around me, are they busy sharing with me their opinions or are they pointing me to my greatest need? And that is the word of God. 
We need to make sure that the people around us who are influencing us are influencing us to the only place that is light-giving and life-giving. Make sure that we are. Follow this even further. The woman said to him, surely you know what Saul has done. So even here, there's some grace. The woman speaks back to Saul. Surely you know that this is wrong. And this is another opportunity for Saul to wake up to that. But Saul isn't interested in self, um, in examining himself, is he? He continues on. This continues to spiral. How he has cut off the mediums and the necromancers from the land. Why then are you laying a trap for my life to bring about my death? But Saul swore to her by the Lord. Do you hear the irony in that? Do you hear the blasphemy in that? That Saul is not interested in keeping the word of the Lord, but he will swear by the word of the Lord for this medium who has already been judged and kicked out and removed from God's people. You see, God is useful to Saul. He's useful to him. He will invoke him when he feels like he needs to. He's still trying to speak on behalf of God even now. But Saul swore to her by the Lord, as the Lord lives, no punishment shall come upon you for this thing. Something that's already been judged and punished, no punishment will come upon you. And then the woman said, whom shall I bring up for you? And he said, bring up Samuel for me. See, Saul was a self-reliant pragmatist who saw God as useful. And there's a word in here for us, I believe, brothers and sisters, in our in our world today, especially in the context in which we live, it is very easy to adopt a pragmatic lifestyle and call it Christian and invoke God only when we need him. We need to be careful of that. God's word is a precious gift to us. It alone is light giving. It alone illuminates the truth for us. It alone leads us into life. Either we believe that or we don't. And we can get caught up in patterns of pragmatism. We get caught up just doing what we think will work. And then the, the problem with that is we're always justifying ourselves with that. We justify ourselves because it works. This is becoming increasingly so in our culture where God's people are going to either have to choose to stand on God's word and live in accordance with it or we will do what works. And increasingly so in our culture, those two things are not going to match up. And it'll be in those situations where we will have to choose whether we believe or we continue down the road of pragmatism. We need to be careful with that. So what do we do with this encounter with this medium and Samuel? What do we do with this? Anybody else like uneasy about this? This is hard, right? But it's in God's word. So we look at it here. Let's read it together. Verse 12, when the woman saw Samuel, she cried out with a loud voice. And the woman said to Saul, why have you deceived me? You are Saul. The king said to her, do not be afraid. What do you see? And the woman said to Saul, I see a God coming up out of the earth. And he said to her, what is his appearance? And she said, an old man is coming up and he is wrapped in a robe. And Saul knew that it was Samuel and he bowed with his face to the ground and paid homage. There are several different ways that we can approach this, several different things that we can believe about this. Is this really Samuel? Is this really the spirit of Samuel? Is this some kind of demonic presence? Or is it something else completely? And the truth about it is, we don't know. I don't think we can know for sure. The truth about it is, nowhere in the Bible does it say that this is impossible. 
It certainly doesn't speak about the possibility of it here in this chapter. I wish that were so. I wish there was a place in God's word that we can just go and say, see, here it says that this is impossible. In fact, there are some scholars who point to the episode of the transfiguration and the fact that Moses and Elijah are there. So there is precedence for something like this. We don't know. Right. We don't know what to do with this. I don't believe, and there are people who I very much respect who say that they believe that this is demonic presence, but what does the spirit of Samuel do but reaffirm God's word? So I struggle to believe that this is demonic. I tend to believe, and I hold this loosely, that God is the power behind this, not the medium. Okay, And God is conjuring up the spirit of Samuel to speak to Saul. Again, I hold that very loosely. Very loosely. At the end of the day, I don't know that we can say for sure. John Piper says we are not secularists. We are supernaturalists. So if we say, no, that's just too weird. No, we believe in supernatural. Right? We believe in a God who is raised from the dead. We believe in angels. We believe in demons. We believe in the spiritual realm. We believe in these things. So we can't just say no because it makes us feel weird and it's something outside of the realm of, 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 of what we see with our physical eyes. We are spiritualists, so we have to admit that there are spiritual things that we don't understand. Davis says this, he says, Yahweh forbids Israel to use these means, not because they do not work, but because they are wicked. And that's what we need to hear. Our justification for doing what we do should not be found in whether it works or not. The question is not, does it work? The question is, what has God said? And we'll only know that if we are people of the word, if we're creatures of God's word, we will increasingly go to God's word for those questions. And that will determine whether we walk a path or do something, not does it work. So Saul doesn't even realize his greatest danger. He doesn't even realize his greatest need. We see him in a state of spiritual blindness here. And Saul's desperation drives him not to God, But it drives him to rebellion. And instead of resting in the goodness and assurance of God's faithful promises, Saul places himself in even even greater danger as his spirit, uh, as he spirals into darkness further and further. Here's the third thing. God's word reveals to us the truth about ourselves. God's word is a mirror into which we look. And when we look into that mirror and into the mirror of God's holiness, we can't help but see things in our own lives that don't add up. We see re- really who we are, okay? If we're left to our own devices, we can come up with a pretty good summation of who we are, right? I can justify myself. I can start to look around and start to feel pretty good about myself, right? Who I am in my own strength. But when I go to God's Word, it reveals, it reveals who I am in reality. And the contrast here is that Saul's stubborn self-reliance brings him to the end of himself. Notice his words to Samuel. In his recap of the events, look at verse 15. Then Samuel said to Saul, I'm sorry. Oh, yeah, 15. Then Samuel said to Saul, why have you disturbed me by bringing me up? Well, that's the question that you would expect him to say, right? Why have you disturbed me? Saul answers. Now, listen to the way he answers. I am in great distress for the Philistines are warring against me and God has turned away from me. 
and answers me no more, either by prophets or by dreams. Therefore, I have summoned you to tell me what I should do. What's the focus on here? It's self-justification all the way down. Is that a proper assessment of the facts for Samuel? Notice what he says here. God's turned his back on me, Samuel. You wouldn't even believe it. I went to him. Like, I went and inquired of him. I even went to different methods to try to hear from him, Samuel. And can you believe it? He didn't speak back to me. Right? Now the Philistines are bearing down on me. Does God not care about his people, Samuel? Certainly God cares about his people, but he doesn't care for me. He doesn't care about his people because he's not coming to me. He's not talking to me. All these things are working against me. See, the truth is, Saul did not recognize his own responsibility, and he did not understand his true need. He had long ago abandoned his responsibility that he had, not only personally, but corporately for God's people. He had abandoned that long ago. And by choosing to walk outside of God's will and outside of his word, he had forgotten who he is and what his true need was. Not once in this summation to Samuel does it speak of his True need of of God speaking to him. True need for God's word. He's just coming looking for answers for the solution that he needs. And so we hear Samuel answer. Look at verses 16 and 17. And Samuel said, why then do you ask me since the Lord has turned from you and become your enemy? Listen to that. This is Samuel's response. Why then do you ask me? Since the Lord has turned from you and become your enemy, the Lord has done to you as he spoke by me. For the Lord has torn the kingdom out of your hand and given it to your neighbor, David. Listen to verse verse 18. Because you did not obey the voice of the Lord and did not carry out his fierce wrath against Amalek. Therefore, the Lord has done this thing to you this Day. So what is Samuel's response? It's not that God will not speak to you. It is that you fail to obey him in what God spoke to you to do. That's the difference. That's the difference. And so Samuel just highlights his disobedience, highlights his rebellion from what God had responded. Listen to 1 Samuel 15. If you want to flip back there, you can. Uh, 1 Samuel 15. Back to when this first pronouncement of rejection was given to Saul by Samuel. It's interesting what Samuel says back in chapter 15. Look at verses 22 and 23 when you get there. It says this. It says, And Samuel said, Has the Lord uh, as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? If you'll remember, this is when Saul offered the sacrifice that the priest only, only offers because the priest hadn't shown up on his timetable. Remember that? So Saul takes it upon himself to step into the role of the priest to offer the sacrifice. And so now this is how Samuel is responding to him. Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifice as in what? Obeying the voice of the Lord. That's what God demands of the king, to obey God's word. Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to listen than that of the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of divination. Do you hear that? This is what Samuel said back in chapter 15. For rebellion is as the sin of divination. And what is that sin? It is looking outside of God's word for the answers that can only be found in God's word. For rebellion is as the sin of divination and presumption is as iniquity and idolatry. 
And he says this, because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. And if we look back over Saul's reign, we see that this is a pattern. It happened here with the offering in chapter 13. It happens with the Amalekites in chapter 15. That Saul is not interested in in surrendering to what God says. He's not interested in doing what God has commanded. One commentator writes it this way, and I like this like this quote. He says, Saul would have uh, Saul would have called it accommodation. That God has spoken and given clear direction. Saul acts out of accordance with that, and Saul would call that accommodation. When he feels the circumstance closing in around him, instead of following the voice of the Lord and obeying that, he would call it accommodation. Samuel calls it rebellion. Saul thought it prudence. Samuel labeled, uh, labeled it stubbornness. He goes on to say that Saul would refer to it as reinterpretation. That God has spoken, but now my interpretation changes because the situation has changed. What would Saul call it? He would call it rejection of God's word. Verse 19, moreover, Samuel goes on to say, moreover, the Lord will give Israel also with you into the hand of the Philistines. And tomorrow you and your son shall be with me. The Lord will give the army of Israel also into the hand of the Philistines. So this judgment that is rendered on Saul is just a restatement of what God has already said. God is faithful to do what he says he will do. But not only that, do you feel the corporate consequences of this along with just the way that Saul is judged? It's not only Saul that will feel the sting of this. It's God's people that will feel the sting of this. So we see judgment Because he has chosen not to listen to the word of the Lord. Finally, God's word pierces the darkness of our sin with the light of God's redemption. This is one of those times where I turned in the outline and wished that I had stated something different there. So you can write this in. We're going to talk about that, but I would rather label this part. God's word alone is truly life giving. God's word alone is truly satisfying. It is the only thing that can satisfy. I want you to notice what Saul's response to this is. This word that comes from Samuel that just really restates what God has already said about uh, about Samuel or about Saul, about the truth um, of his rejection of God's word, about his future uh, that's short lived now. Verse 20, then Saul fell at once full length on the ground, filled with fear. Now notice this filled with fear because of what? The words of Samuel. You feel the weight of that. That even now, Saul has the opportunity to respond and feel the weight of God's rejection. For his heart to be captivated once again with fear of God. And yet, Saul fell at once, full length on the ground, full, filled with fear because of the words of Samuel. I think that had a lot to do with Saul coming to the realization that his life was about to end. Even in this, this response has to do with self-preservation. And there was no strength in him, for he had eaten nothing all day and all night. And the woman came to Saul, and when she saw that he was terrified, she said to him, Behold, your servant has obeyed you. I've taken my life in my hand, and I've listened to what you have said to me. Now, therefore, you also obey your servant 
Let me set a morsel of bread before you and eat that you may have strength when you go on your way. In verse 23, Saul refuses and he says, I will not eat. But his servants together with the woman urged him and he listened to their words. So he arose from the earth and sat on the bed. Now the woman had a fattened calf in the house and she quickly killed it and she took flour and kneaded it and baked unleavened bread of it. And she put it before Saul and his servants and they ate. And then they arose and went away that what? Night. We see that this woman makes Saul a meal fit for a king. But even in that meal, we see that the only satisfaction that Saul can find outside of God's word is short-lived, it's empty, it's temporary, and it's vain. Did Saul get the answers that he sought? I think he did. Maybe not in what he was hoping to find out. But certainly God worked through all of this to once again point him to the answer that had already been given to him and according to his word. Now contrast this with just a second to our first glimpse of Saul. What does the scripture say about Saul when we first are introduced to him at the beginning? He's taller than everybody. He stands out. His stature. He's big and strong. He's got a good reputation. People point to him and say, yes, that's who we want as king. And here in the end, how do we see Saul? A man beaten down has to be picked up by his servants even to sit at a table and eat one final meal before he walks out into the night towards the end that God has for him. As the people's king fades into darkness, God's light illuminates the future hope. Here's the truth. Turn over to Ephesians 2 with me for just a moment. We read Ephesians 1 earlier. Look at Ephesians 2 now. At the end of this beautiful section in Ephesians 2, it talks about who we were as being dead in our trespasses and sins, but God, being rich in mercy, has redeemed us. By grace you are saved through faith. We come to verse 11, and this is what Paul writes there. He says, Therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise. And listen to this phrase, having no hope and without God in the world. That is an appropriate summation of Saul's distress in this passage. Who is Saul? In this passage, well, he is without hope and without God in the world. And the truth is, this passage in Ephesians is talking about the Gentiles. And Saul, their king, walks out into the night, abandoning God's word. He's without hope and without God in the world. And finally, the people have what they wanted in this king. They have a king like all the other nations. What a sad end to his reign. What a sad end to this story. The people's king fades into darkness, spiraling into the darkness. But at the same time, and Gerald has already pointed us to this, that as this king steps out into the night, there's another king who steps out into the light. 
David and his men leave at first light and walk out into the day. Now, here's the truth. David is acting in rebellion just as Saul is here. So what does this tell us? Well, it tells us that our hope is not in David. It's not as if Saul has left God's people hopeless and here comes the great champion David to bring the hope. Our emphasis this morning is on God's word. Where is our hope? It's in his word. This is such a beautiful picture of God's sovereign grace, isn't it? Both of these kings are flawed. Both of them are sinful. And we've not even gotten into just how sinful David's heart is yet. At the same time, he's walking in deception. He's walking in rebellion, even as the other king is consulting a medium to try to figure out the course of his life as he's abandoned God's word. Neither one of these guys offer us hope. But here's the truth. While the people's king has been rejected, God's king, who he has appointed, is going to walk into the light. Despite his sin, our sovereign God is going to carry that plan to fruition in Christ. And just as we identify with Saul in that we are dead in our trespasses and sins, our, our hearts are darkened by sin and its consequences, and we can't see God. We have been cut off from him and cut off from his word because of sin. But here's the beauty of Jesus. He goes to the cross and he willingly is cut off for us so that we can walk into the light in him. And just as we come to the end of the story and we are prone to feel just hopeless and helpless for these people. It is a helpless story if it's just left up to him. But there is a God at work. That's the beauty of this passage. Remember. That at one time you were separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no help no hope and without God in the world, verse 13, but now in Christ Jesus. You who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. God is working out a plan in the midst of this, using broken vessels, broken men to bring about his plan of redemption for us. But here's the truth. We have to respond to that in faith by believing God and taking him at his word. That's the only place of salvation that we have. So here's the application for today. We need to be reminded this morning of just how precious a gift God's word is to us. God has spoken to us. He's given us his word. So what should be our response? Belief. To believe him. To believe his word. To walk in belief. God's word reveals to us how we can be reconciled to him through the finished work of Jesus. Brothers and sisters, we believe by resting in that. We rest in that truth. And if you are here this morning, and if you're not in Christ, there is no salvation outside of him. He is the only one who has come to us to stand in our place, to do everything that is necessary to fulfill the legal demands of God. He is the one who earned righteousness for us. He is then the one who went to the cross, becoming the curse of sin for us. And he drinks every drop of the Father's wrath for our sin in himself, so that now by faith we can have his righteousness and have right standing before God. There's salvation in no one other than him. 
Either we believe that and we walk in it or we don't. We must respond with belief. But that's not just for those who are outside of Christ, brothers and sisters. We continue to walk in that truth every day. Either we will rest in Christ or we will take this act of salvation into our own hands. We can rest today because we believe God and take him at his word. God's word reveals to us his cosmic plan of redemption that he is working with the objective of uniting all things in Christ. Brothers and sisters, walk in that. I'm weary of looking around our culture and I'm seeing people who call themselves Christians and instead of walking in that reality, we're turning to pragmatism to make sure it all works out. Don't do that. The ends do not justify the means. We need to be told that over and over and over. We take, God's, we take God at his word and we walk in the truthfulness of his word. And we are creatures of his word. Or we will try to throw some Jesus into our pragmatism just looking to, to see what works. We cannot abide in Christ and walk in pragmatism. We can't do both. Walk in the reality of what God's word tells us. God's word reveals to us the reality of who he is, his holiness and his sovereignty and his power and his grace and his goodness and his faithfulness. Here's the invitation. Believe him by abiding in him. Abide in him today. Abide in his word. Be a creature of his word, not just one who casually glances and gives it a nod every now and then. Abide in this word because we believe that it is God's word. That's the application today. Hebrews 2, 1 through 3. It's come to my mind a few times this week, and this is where I'll close. Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? Saul had turned from the only source of salvation he had to try to work things out on his own. May we be people who reject that so that we pursue God and what he has said, knowing that there is salvation in no one other than him through his word. Let's pray together. So, God, thank you for your word, Lord, even when it is weird, even when we struggle to make sense of it, God, even when we have questions and even after studying it, walk away continuing to have questions. But, God, we thank you for your word. God, thank you that you have pierced our darkness with the truth of who you are, God. Lord, we we do pray in line with what Paul prayed In that Ephesian prayer, God, that your spirit would do the work of revelation in our hearts to open the eyes of our hearts to see the reality of who you are and the reality of all else. God, I pray that we wouldn't try to make sense of this world outside of that. God, help us to see what a precious gift your word is to us. And God, I pray that we would test you in that. We would try you and see that you are faithful. Lord, even in times that we feel squeezed and we feel like that maybe living in accordance with your word maybe isn't the best thing. God, help us to trust you in those moments. God, guard us from choosing pragmatism in our lives. God, help us to see that your way is best and that you are working together a plan. And then, Father, I pray that you would align us with that. 
Surround us with people who will encourage us in that way and not just share opinions. God, help us to choose your word because we know that it's good. God, I pray that we would be people of belief. So God, guard us from drifting, guard us from spiraling. God, I pray that you would help us to be um, active in our pursuit of you, Father, in all things. Thank you for your word this morning. Thank you for the opportunity that we have to study it together, Lord. And I pray, God, that we would respond in the way that you call us to. God, respond in a way that would honor you. Um, So, Lord, thank you for that. And and I pray that you do that in our hearts now. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.